Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from EPAM Continuum. I don't know about you, but I have a little problem with exclamation marks in my texts and my emails. Specifically, I overuse them. I actually make myself go back and delete every third one I employ so that it doesn't sound like I'm needlessly screaming with happiness. I do this because the alternative, an exclamation-free message, reads to me as cold, terse, or even angry. Well, it turns out that humans are hardwired to interpret many experiences as negative or dangerous as part of our survival mechanism. I'm sure that helped my ancestors escape all manner of lions, and it keeps me from burning myself on the stove too much. But this instinct towards the negative has consequences on how we construe many of the interactions in our daily lives, including, of course, our interactions and customer service experiences, which are often the source of great frustrations. But it can be hard for companies to figure out how to provide positive experiences for customers without constantly showering them with exclamation points or flashy novel new things. What do we do about this? Well, that's where Megan Burns comes in. As the founder and CEO of Enterprise Experiences, she uses her decades of expertise in customer centricity and customer experience management to help organizations find practical, sustainable changes that improve the experiences for their customers and their employees. Megan has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, interviewed by NBC News, and has now finally achieved the pinnacle of career success by being interviewed here on The Resonance Test. She chatted recently with Toby Bottorf, Vice President of Experience and Service Design here at EPAM Continuum, about getting credit for what's going right, how dealing with robotic humans is worse than interacting with actual robots, and creating positive experiences that keep people loyal. Let's listen in. Hi, Megan. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Toby. It's great to be here. Every time we talk, I feel like I learn something more about uh, the space we're in, CX, customer experience, service design. Um, our perspective here at EPAM Continuum is often kind of deep dive into narrow, very specific projects. And when we've talked in the past, I've always benefited from, from your broader perspective. Um, you get to see a lot more cases and different kinds of pattern recognition at play. Uh, I'm curious if we could just jump into what we're talking about when we talk about good customer experience. I've heard, I've read you um, you've written about effectiveness, ease, and my favorite, we're going to talk about our feelings, emotion. Um, let's start with effectiveness. What's going on there? Effectiveness is basically the idea that most business interactions, there's some customer trying to accomplish some goal. It might be looking up information. It might be entertaining themselves if they're listening to you know music on or really Spotify. Good podcasts. Or really good podcasts. True. Um but whatever need you had, did you get that need met? So very functionally, it's, you know, if you were trying to buy something, did you buy something uh, going on through, you know, if you had some sort of a, an information need or to resolve an issue, was the issue resolved? So is that um, closer to like experience, basic quality or even product quality? <sighs> the word quality has so many dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, I think it really is effectiveness because okay. experiences are inherently um, subjective. Yeah. And so quality to me is actually more around the emotional piece. Was it a good experience? Um, okay, good. This really has to do with the very task oriented, functionally oriented dimension of quality. Cool. When I think about effectiveness, it reminds me of some, pro sometimes we get the problem of um, low engagement mm -hmm. and people think that that may be a problem of the customer experience. And often we diagnose that it's really a, a problem of 
effectiveness um, or really usefulness or relevance. Does that resonate? It does. And it's interesting because the effectiveness, ease and emotion framework actually came from uh, a usability framework many, mm. many years ago before I even started working with it. And uh, desirability and usefulness, that was actually what that dimension was called. Sure. So there's absolutely a piece of that. Uh, and if you look at it from a product perspective, the is this product or service something that is useful to someone? Would they have a reason to use it? That's actually the origin of that um, that piece. We just had to make it a little more broad as it started getting out into a broader swath of business. Cool. So effectiveness, getting things done. The next one is ease, mm -hmm. um, which may be the same thing as convenience. Check me if I'm wrong on that. But um, whether there are obstacles along the way? Whether there are obstacles along the way, um, the word nerd in me could probably spend a couple minutes talking about the difference between ease and convenience. Um, convenience to me is ease of access. There yeah. are other forms of ease. Um, but yeah, it's basically uh, how much, I think of it as how much unnecessary effort do I have to put in, right? There's inherently some amount of work involved in every task. And when I think of things being not easy, it implies that there is some level of effort that I have to put in beyond what I quote unquote should have to put in. Hmm. And in, in work that we've seen, especially around more employee experience than customer experience, sometimes work is really crucial to leave in that people take, take pride in certain aspects of their work. And the things that you want to get rid of are, are menial busy work, but people have their craft that they want to be good at. Yeah, they have their craft. They have, uh, interestingly, I heard, I believe it was the CEO of Betterment talk mm -hmm. at a conference not long ago. And he was saying that if they don't show their work in the math, the mm. customers aren't as trusting of the numbers. Yeah. So they actually expose some of the work instead of simplifying, which is counterintuitive, but it speaks yeah. to that emotional dimension of experience. Uh, and also, uh, sometimes slowing down and going through the steps we were just talking about writing earlier yeah. and they're really it, writing is not easy and there is no shortcut to writing. And sometimes, um, the work of doing that is difficult, but necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned that that betterment example, um, sounds a bit like they've put some friction in it, which is great because we keep on hearing, I think too much about, removing friction and frictionless and frictionless and more convenience. And um, sometimes things are better if you have to slow down, if you notice more, you get more out of it. Yeah, I wrote a blog post probably about a year and a half ago now on what is really the definition of meeting customers' needs, because human beings are notorious for wanting multiple conflicting things, right? We have present <laughs> bias. So is making it easy for someone who's trying to curb their spending habits to buy, you know, $400 worth of shoes at three o'clock in the morning from their bed, from their phone, is that really meeting the customer's quote unquote needs? Mm -hmm. Probably not. And so in customer experience, I think we need to start factoring that into where do we put some friction in place to help customers um, save themselves from some natural human tendencies that we have. So good. Now let's get to round two, uh, emotion. Um, you've said that that's the one that drives loyalty the most. Mm -hmm. Loyalty is something I'm a little bit obsessed about on our projects. Um, what Because experiences are so ephemeral. Mm -hmm. um, 
what makes them stick? My hunch is that it has a lot to do with memory, and emotion and memory are super connected. They are. And actually, um, if you look at the research, emotion plays a role in three different places in the experience. It determines what we even notice, mm. right? Our conscious brains only notice about 40 pieces of the 11 million pieces of information we take in at any moment. Probably for me, it's about eight. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what we even notice depends on the how our brain unconsciously processes it. Um, then how we attach meaning to it is also shaped by emotion, right? It's mm -hmm. pretty well proven that if you're in a bad mood, you're going to interpret things as more negative than you yeah. would. You know, some days your friends and family are just more annoying than they normally are because you're in a bad mood. Mm -hmm. um, and then the emotional intensity of that experience, which is based on that sort of level set that you come in with, the more emotionally uh, strong an experience is our brains are programmed to keep those memories, the emotionally strong memories, um, sort of first in the queue. Yeah. Our memories are kind of like a hierarchy and the ones that are really emotionally intense, which tend to be negative, those are the ones that we can very often recall fastest. So do, are we hardwired to remember negative things more easily than positive things? Yes. For a couple reasons. That sounds like a glitch. Why? <laughs> well, no, it's not a glitch. It's a survival mechanism. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That pan is still hot that you just pulled out of the stove. I can never remember that. But yeah. I know how to stay away from a lion, I guess. Yeah. Oh, hey, last time I saw that, I was in a world of hurt. Perhaps I should steer away from that versus, yeah. you know, forgetting. Um, so it is absolutely a survival mechanism, but it does have implications now where we can hear about and have an emotional response to far more stories and experiences than we ever used to. Mm. So it biases us towards a more negative view of everything. Uh, 2018, Steven Pinker gave a TED Talk that I absolutely loved about why the world is actually better than it's ever been, mm. counter to the feeling, you know, a lot of people express having that, you know, yep. everything's, we're, we're about to fall off a cliff. Um, that's that negative bias in action. Yeah, yeah we, the world is so complex right now. I think hell, we're going to hell in a handbasket and things have never been better than they, like, things that are contradictory can both be true at the same time, I think. Yes. And I actually use that phrase, hell in a handbasket. I just wasn't sure if anyone else still did. So thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, so that connects to the, the second point that you mentioned, which is the, we go through the day, uh, especially unfamiliar situations, making meaning. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we put, you know, a line is made up of just two points and you can extrapolate from that. And then all new evidence gets mapped to this template that you've, you've built a provisional version of like, oh, I see how this is going to go. Yeah. Um, and it, it cues you to expect good things or um, more trouble ahead. Absolutely. And the, the extent to which that happens and the, the power, I mean, we're, we're incredible pattern matching machines mm -hmm. that what human beings do. But most of the time, we're not conscious of the patterns that we're attaching to someone. Um, so even just saying, you know, here is the possible other interpretation of a series of events. Um, I just uh, had a conversation with someone recently about virtual communication and the mm. challenges of virtual communication. And one of the best practices that this gentleman suggested was try reading your email before you send it in three or four different tones of voice. So read it the way you <laughs> intend, but then read it in a snarky voice to mm -hmm. say, what if this person tells themselves a story that I'm upset yeah. or this is snarky. What if this person tells themselves a story that I am 
Uh, I don't even know what usually upset is the one thing that people will go to because um, when in doubt, we assume negative intentions. Oh, so I'm starting to feel a little overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> What's an experienced designer to do? Um, how do we, can, do we even have the tools to set people up to be more optimistic, to have positive expectations and intent? We do. And I think it's really easy to get this sky is falling perspective. I did an analysis very similar to what Steven Pinker did, uh, but with customer experience data instead of with, you know, life and happiness data. And the vast majority of customer experiences are not only okay, they're positive, mm. more than 75%. And if you think about your life, you know, you don't go through life having massive, hopefully massive crises every day, but yeah. we take for granted that so much works. So just building in moments where we can pause and recognize that, especially as experienced designers, recognize all the things that we get right yeah. before we worry about how to improve the things that we get wrong, mm -hmm. because we get a lot of it right and we don't give ourselves credit for that. Yeah, I, I think that the, there's been a first wave of customer experience improvement that's been about fixing the most broken things, mm -hmm. which given what you were saying about a negative mindset, like, yeah, make sure people don't have something terrible to remember. And now we're moving into a new wave where we're thinking more about where are the heightened emotional moments and what can we do there? So we're not trying to just bombard people with delight every step of the way, which sounds a bit wearisome to me. It is, and I think when people say, uh, delight, surprise and delight customers, what they're really getting at is the fact that humans are wired for novelty, mm. right? One of the things that makes something get our attention is that it's new. Yeah. And so surprise is usually new or unexpected. Uh, and that does become harder because people acclimate to things very right. quickly. Um, when I think about the fact that there was no iPhone mm -hmm. when I started in customer experience in 2006, and I think about what we defined as easy, yeah. or um, effective back then relative to now, and that's only been 13 years. So what counts as new or standing out, um, things just blend into people's expectations so much more quickly now. I think the challenge is really how do we do something new, mm -hmm. even if it's not necessarily delightful for any reason other than that it's new. Yeah. Um. One of the things that's tricky about novelty is um, it doesn't work repeatedly, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of categorically. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I think we've seen in our work is to try to give people flexibility that um, something that is scripted is inherently not novel. Mm -hmm. But where you give frontline employees uh, the leeway to respond to people's needs, um, do the right thing in context, that fits better. Um, it's more memorable. Um, it's more in line maybe with uh, effectiveness and it's got a nice emotional component to it as well. Yeah. I mean, part of what we need, the needs that we need met in an experience is to be seen and recognized as a human being. Mm. And people actually dislike, at least in the research I've read, um, humans who are acting like robots more yeah. than they dislike actual robots because there's something just inherently worse about that. Um, <laughs> every experience you have is novel. Even if yeah. we, you and I sat down later this afternoon and did this again, it wouldn't be quite the same. So part of what we have to do is just let and recognize human interactions to be the sort of ad hoc things that they right. are. Um, and that's where a lot of that uh, 
employee empowerment and just conversationalism, uh, I think, is going in customer experience. We also have a pendulum effect. Say more. I was uh, thinking about this the other day. Uh, it used to be that you would go to your mailbox, your snail mailbox, and pull out a giant stack of direct mail postcards. Now I get maybe three or four a week. So if someone sends me a letter, like mm. not a postcard, but an actual handwritten letter, mm -hmm. that stands out tremendously. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, that was not that unusual of a thing to do. We used to be that people were like, oh, I got email. Oh, I got an email. Now we get thousands of emails. So we sometimes have this pendulum of behavior that says what wasn't new or different a while ago after some time becomes new and different again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something's come back. Um, old things come back in new ways. Yeah. Um, we're having an event here, just an internal kind of a beer and a jam session with typewriters. Oh, I love it. <laughs> some of our younger designers, um, like I remember typewriters as being uh, tiring for your hands. Um, yeah. But they're now a different kind of thing. They're fun, they're special, they're analog. Yes, Things I, I, I probably have an old uh, record player somewhere mm -hmm. in my basement that also I could lend cool. to some of them. Yeah. Yes, they're becoming very <laughs> cool again. So we talked a little bit. I want to go right at it. This, um, the relationship between customer experience and employee experience. Um, we, we find uh, repeatedly that uh, when you start out trying to develop a better customer experience, you're inevitably going to start to have to start working on a better employee experience. Mm -hmm. Is that true to your experience too? Absolutely. And I think it's most acute for the employees who interact directly with customers, yeah. right? Because that's the same experience. You can't yeah. redesign one half without half. redesigning yeah. the other half. Um, but I think that's also true further down in the organization because everything is so interconnected. And if people are, um, even if people haven't slept well hmm. or they're stressed out, um, they don't make as good decisions. Uh, there's a great quote from um, Ariana Huffington in her book on sleep that said a board that um, gives kudos to a CEO who says they only sleep four hours a night is basically saying, okay, good, we're happy that you're running this company drunk mm. because the cognitive impairment of living on four hours yeah. of sleep a night is the same thing. So getting the most out of people, getting them to have empathy. Mm -hmm. Our empathy goes down when we're frustrated and we don't yeah. have the right tools and we have barriers. So all of these things that we're asking people to do and put themselves in customer's shoes, if we don't make sure that they're having uh, an experience that makes them feel uh, like they're achieving something and making a difference and doing yeah. work with purpose, um, they are physically, physiologically less able to do the things that we're asking them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that comment you made a minute ago about customers um, wanting to be recognized as people, as individuals. Uh, same thing is true of, of mm -hmm. employees. And um, the employee that's being forced to behave like a robot, they're not having a good time either. No. It's funny that totally separately, the research that I did and then some research I've seen from the HR space, the number one thing that drives loyalty for customers and employees is feeling valued. Hmm. That's super cool. Yeah. So have you seen examples of where, you know, you might not perceive there to be a lot of value creation in the process, but actually uh, there's room for things to be pretty special? I think one of the one of the things to look for in good customer experience, good employee experience is that um, 
you're not just transferring value in one direction or the other, mm-hmm. but you're actually creating it through that interaction. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a there's a couple of different things. Uh, when we t- there's a lot of talk about empowerment and the need to include empowerment in uh, employee experience, but what you don't, what a lot of people don't realize is that the act of being given the option to fail or to make a bad decision and, and develop your judgment over mm. time, that's an incredibly valuable skill. That if you think about an entry level employee. No, maybe they can't make as good a judgment calls as their manager right now, but how will they ever be able to until and unless they've been given the opportunity to hone that judgment? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, learning how to read people, um, learning how to think on your feet, uh, all of the things that we have to do to manage the uncertainty of customer interactions, those are incredibly valuable skills for employees uh, in the coming decades yeah. that we're helping them build. I think every everybody who works a corporate job um, that used to wait tables <laughs> retain some lessons from their time waiting tables. Yes. <laughs> I can speak for myself. Having been fired from waiting tables, yeah. um, I learned some hard lessons. And there are some companies like, uh, I believe this is still the case, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, you cannot be promoted into management unless you have come up from the ranks of working in mm. one of their rental facilities because they don't want anyone who doesn't have that visceral experience of staring at a customer who's upset because yeah. their car's not ready. Um, they are just very... Um, Strict isn't the right word, but they're very consistent about that. Yeah, the gap between frontline interactions between customers and employees and the Mm. C-suite can be so high. It makes it's a reason why I love um, Undercover Boss (laughs) because it's such a shock to some, oftentimes for executives to know what their employees are going through on a daily basis. Yeah, and I'm sure you see this in research. I've seen it. Um, I do an executive journey mapping workshop where it's not to come up with a full journey map, but it's to expose executives to the process. And more than a few times, I've had a head of a call center who has never actually called into his or her call center that they run, and they do this as part of the workshop. Hmm. And the, the change in their facial expressions from sort of frustration to horror to being ready to throw the phone at the wall um, a feeling we all know quite well, but yeah. they never realized just how bad it was. Yeah, we've worked with some clients where um, the CEO spends time every month uh, answering the phone, and we know that's a sign of a good company. Um, Absolutely. Because there's there's only one way to experience that. Uh, I try to oftentimes tell clients there's only two rules of customer experience. One is you can't make me, and two is I'm not doing it wrong. Yeah, I've heard you say that before, and I think you're absolutely spot on. So I do a lot of working with companies who are interested in customer experience, not quite sure what that means, not quite sure what a transformation involves. Mm. And empathy in particular is a tough concept to introduce because you're, you know, sort of backhandedly saying that these people are not already empathetic. So one of the things I remind people, and a lot of them don't even know this, is that it is difficult for human beings to put ourselves in the shoes of another person. That task of perspective taking, some of us are better at it than others, but it takes practice. And so the idea that you need to do customer visits and spend time on the phones and spend time with people is not a sign of your competence as an executive. It's a sign of the fact that you are a human being who is different from the people you are trying to serve. Mm-hmm. And that taking that stigma away from it uh, helps some people feel more comfortable about doing this um, without seeming like they're admitting yeah. what they didn't know. 
we we try to that point about um, empathy. It's it's extremely hard to persuade somebody uh, rationally about the value of it. Mm -hmm. When they get it, they get it in a visceral way. It's kind of like a closed loop. Um, we try super hard to get executives when we're doing uh, customer interviews, going out to meet customers in their homes or shopping with them or whatever the right domain is. Um, because there's just no substitute for that firsthand experience mm -hmm. for the overburdened messiness of somebody's life. And that you're trying to earn permission to have a place of prominence in their life and be a choice for them. It's, it's harder than you think. Absolutely. And I heard a great example of this. So we were talking about employee and customer experience coming together. Uh, I was at a conference and I heard the chief diversity, uh, diversity and inclusion officer of a company talking about a tech company talking about her work. And one of her big challenges was getting people to think of DNI as more than just representation, right? Do we have mm. the right number of people? And she said what she does when she works with a new executive is she says, can you tell me about a time when you felt left out of something? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how much of the mainstream majority class you are in. We have all felt left out of something yeah. at some point. And she uses that as a foray into diversity and inclusion programs are about minimizing the times when employees feel left out or excluded or not part of something. And she I thought it was brilliant. She mm. connects it to uh, an emotional experience that everyone has had yeah. to get them to think differently. Seems like a good way of jumpstarting that perspective taking. Yeah. So I have some questions about um, where you think things may be headed. Mm -hmm. um, we, we talked earlier about um, a, a good first wave of fixing things that are most broken and now getting to uh, a more targeted understanding of, of where to prioritize. Maybe that's in line with brand. Um, and maybe it's in, in, in service of a better, um, bigger picture vision. I think a, a lot of customer experience work has been um, incremental in nature, focused on measuring and fixing and measuring and fixing. Uh, what do you see about the, the prospects for a, a kind of a bigger picture perspective taking form? Um, because I think the reputation of customer experience is increasing in the C-suite. It is. And I think it's, it's, there are two paths that are going to happen in parallel. One is the, the general population is getting to a point where they're saying, uh, just because I can doesn't mean I need to or want mm. to. So I'm a huge fan. Uh, I read Deep Work by Cal Newport. And one of the things he talks about is that our strategy for social media has been an any benefit strategy. If there's any benefit to using a social media platform, let's just add it on. Yeah. As opposed to saying, no, you know, this adds some benefit, but it doesn't add as much benefit as others, so I'm going to pick one or two. So I think there's going to be a thinning out and a mm -hmm. calling out of things that just because it's a cool experience doesn't necessarily mean that it earns a place in my life. And then in parallel with that for companies, uh, I think the experiences that companies are going to have to facilitate will be increasingly human experiences because we have all of this digital technology and people are more connected and yet feel more alone than they ever have. And yeah. there's a lot of sociologists looking at that. So we're seeing more live events. We're seeing more people coming together in, in very human ways. I think that humanity piece 
uh, is going to become, become a bigger piece of the emotion that people are looking for from an experience. It's that pendulum swinging back again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed um, that there's so many, what started out as purely digital direct-to-consumer um, businesses that sell mattresses or shoes or makeup and skincare stuff, and they're all opening shops. Mm -hmm. um, it may not be the place where they're going to make a lot of money, but um, a place that somebody can visit once makes all of the other more ephemeral touch points a little bit more human, a little bit more concrete in their lives. Yeah, humans are physical beings, and you We're know, not just voices in the air. It, no, well, at least not yet. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So having that tactile face to face, um, I feel like this conversation has kind of moved from the customer to the um, employee experience. Let's let's take one more step backward and kind of move behind what uh, in the trade we call the line of visibility. Uh, what about things, systems, or ways of working? Um, that can be set up invisible to customers um, that you see that, that you may have seen this as helpful to a great customer experience. That's a great question. I think one of the most useful things, one of the most useful systems, is having to weigh a way to show people where they fit in the bigger picture. Hmm. Uh, because we're, we've reached a point in a lot of companies. Um, the truth is that. Scale creates some problems that empathy will just never be able to solve. Yeah. More empathy is not the answer. And so the question becomes, how do we deal with those problems? And understanding where I fit in a larger process, maybe I can't understand all the details, but it gives me a connection. It gives me some context for making decisions that makes me better at my job, in addition to making me feel like I'm part of something and understand how my work impacts people. Um, I think that's one reason that uh, collaboration platforms, as imperfect though they are, um, you know, the ability to find and know who in the organization, there was a company that found that when they had good collaboration, it was because there was someone on the project who'd been there 25 years or more. Mm -hmm. And they said, what is it about that person? And they said, that person knows people everywhere in the company. <laughs> they said, how can we build that for new employees? So the first three months of an employee's tenure was about building relationships with people in other parts mm -hmm. of the company. Because even if you're not the person to solve the problem, I feel much more comfortable picking up the phone and calling and saying, I yeah. know this is somewhere in your division. Will you help me solve this problem? Find the person to solve this mm -hmm. problem. And so that social connectedness inside the company has a very functional usefulness yeah. in addition to, you know, making people feel like they're part of a team. Yeah. And it keeps people from having to um, solve the same problem again and again. If somebody solved it already, yeah. we have already discovered fire. Don't go do it again. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think what you're pointing to, um, the, one of the things that gets me excited about um, the pendulum swinging back to more humanity is is what it asks of brands. Um, customers more and more want to understand what a company stands for um, as a place to shop and employees want the same thing from a place to work. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I see things headed. That's where I hope customer experience is taking us. Yeah, and how a company treats its employees is increasingly important to customers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was flabbergasted when I saw this year's Edelman Trust Barometer data uh, that said that the most trusting relationship people have is with their employer. Hmm. So people don't trust companies, but yeah. they trust the company they work for to do the right thing. 
And so it's increasingly important for people to believe that the company they work for is going to take a stand on bigger social issues as well. You heard it here first, guys. Get after it. (laughs) Thanks, Megan. You're welcome, Toby. Thank you for having me. EPAM Continuum is a global innovation design firm with studios in Boston, Milan, and Shanghai. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks to Megan Burns and Toby Bator for their great conversation today. Cheers to Kip Palalis, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous appreciations to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, and to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.